The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. Uh, if we have not met before, I am Dave. I'm the high school pastor here at TBC and also teach up here occasionally as well. And in my role as a high school pastor, we have the great privilege today for us to leave for Impact Camp down in New Braunfels. And this is really good news. For me, this is, it, it feels like Christmas in June. That's what today feels like for me. And uh, so we're so excited to go to camp today to, to train this week. And uh, we've got, we want to ask you to pray for us as we go. We have 138 students attending from TBC um, with us there at Impact Camp. And yeah, clap for that. That's awesome. And about 40 leaders have sacrificed their time to go to camp with us. And trust me, sacrificed their time to go to camp with us. And then about 40 people from uh, Grace Bible Church are joining us as well. We always train with them every year at Impact Camp. That's about 220 people. So pray for us while we're gone uh, to camp. And then speaking of uh, impact, we still need some drivers. And we've never needed drivers this late in the game for Impact Week, which is June 12th through the 15th. And here's what, I talked to Monica Ainsley, our driver coordinator, and she has done an amazing job. And her job is so difficult. She has to piece together this massive puzzle as to who's riding with who, with all these students going to their various clubs. And uh, she told me we still need about three to six drivers for the morning time slot the week of June 12th through the 15th. I'd say three drivers more for the afternoon slot and then three more for the evening slot. And also we still need substitute drivers as well. So um, uh, if that interests you, if you're available to do it, uh, go out there in the lobby, grab one of those cards for the drivers and scan the QR code. It'll take you to the sign-up link for all the sign-ups. But especially drivers, get signed up this week and get those spots filled up. We'd love to have our church uh, just close the deal on that uh, this week especially. So we are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount called Learning from Jesus. And last week, Chase talked about not retaliating when someone wrongs us. But today we're looking at how to show active love towards someone that we may consider an enemy. Now, we really could see last week and this week as two sides of the same coin. You know, someone once said, returning evil for good is satanic, returning good for good is human, but returning good for evil is divine. So we're going to see how Jesus calls us to love in a way that mirrors his love for us. And we've been looking at how the religious leaders have a a certain idea they've communicated to their people, and Jesus dispels that. So look at verse, uh, Matthew 5, verse 43, and here's what the religious leaders were teaching. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the sixth and final, you have heard that it was said statement. And so you've heard this pattern of you heard that it was said, And the first statement, we understand that, you know, you shall love your neighbor. But the second, the last phrase of that verse sort of stands out, doesn't it? Because um, where is hate commanded in the Bible? Well, it's not. So where would they get that idea from? Well, as in previous statements, Jesus isn't restating the law here, but their misrepresentation of it. And so where are the scribes and Pharisees getting this idea that it's okay to hate one's enemy? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament law. What did it say? Leviticus 19 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, 
lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you see here a command to love one's enemy, not a command to to hate one's enemy. So how could they possibly conclude that they could hate an enemy? Well, the religious leaders, they taught that Leviticus 19 addressed the nation of Israel. So if you notice in that, those verses, there are certain phrases that pop out, like your brother or your neighbor or the sons of your own people. So they started to see Leviticus 19 as only defining their neighbor as a fellow Israelite. They claimed the law said nothing about strangers or enemies, and so that means the law allowed them to hate their enemies. So once again, we've seen them ignore the spirit of the law and adopt the letter only, but this is the most blatant example because they are now adding to the law. And and to do this, they had to ignore where the law said uh, to leave some grain in your field for the foreigner, or in Exodus chapter 23 where it says, if you see your enemy's donkey wandering off, be sure to return it, or if you see them... Uh, your enemy's donkey struggling under a heavy load, help them with it. They had to ignore all of that. What about the command in Proverbs 25 where it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. They They had to ignore all of those Old Testament commands. So how did they justify teaching that they could hate their enemy? Well, surprisingly, they found justification for it in the Old Testament. Are you confused yet? If you go back to Israel's history, when they entered the promised land, God told them to take out whole people groups, like drive them out, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Midianites. Or what about those Psalms in which the writer calls for God to bring judgment down upon the evildoer? These are some of the most difficult passages for skeptics and for believers to deal with. Now, since I brought this up, we need to address it. So why does God command them to drive out the Canaanites when they enter the promised land? Well, to be clear, the Canaanites were given the chance to join with Israel and to turn to God and avoid all of that. And we see in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where it says this, that they may not teach you to do according to all of their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. If those people groups had remained, Israel would fall to idolatry, and eventually they did. And what happened? Israel's idolatry led to great evil in the land. If you want to get really depressed, go read the book of Judges. Or maybe don't. But you see in that book what happens. That book starts bad and it ends bad. There's no happy conclusion to that book. Because it's showing what happens, how how depraved and wicked a nation can become, namely namely Israel, when they allow themselves to follow into, into idolatry. So why did God have Israel play this role? Was there something special about them? Well, we see in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy where it says, not because of your righteousness, Israel, or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. 
So how, how wicked were they? This is going to be hard for me to say and hard for you to hear. But they worshiped this god named Molech. And they had this statue depicting him with the head of a bull and the torso of a human. And they would stoke this fire in the belly of that statue. And they would, they would sacrifice children to that statue, that false god. They worshiped gods, the gods Baal and Ashtoreth, and they would commit bestiality in their worship. And they would use their children as prostitutes at the temple. And so it's not because of the righteousness of the Israelites that God says you're going to drive these people out, but it was, the, it was God bringing judgment on these evil nations. And we know, though, that God is equal opportunity. Because throughout the Bible, we see examples in which he uses the pagan nations to then turn and judge Israel. Or what about the time when Israel made a golden calf and God uses the the tribe of Levi to wipe out 3,000 Israelites in one day? You see, God has the right to judge all evil, and that includes Israel's evil. Now, if you're a skeptic, or even if you're not, you still may not believe that I have resolved the tension for you, and so I'll say it this way. People often ask, how can a good God command Israel to drive out the Canaanites? But they also ask this question, how can a good God allow so much evil? Why doesn't he just get rid of evil? You see the conflict. And in this case, God uses Israel to end this evil before it spreads. But how ironic is it that God is criticized for ending the evil by punishing those who engage in it. You see, sometimes our questions run into each other, don't they? When we look at the the whole story of the Bible, we see a God who is patient, a God who is quick to love, and a God who is slow to anger. We often think of the God of the Old Testament as some some trigger-happy God, but nothing is further from the truth because many times he waits hundreds of years He will call people to repent, but he'll wait hundreds and hundreds of years before he brings down his judgment to drive out and put an end to that evil. So how do we make sense of these Old Testament passages? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says that we need to see them as judicial and never personal. So what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, there are some passages that relate to nations and governments, while some relate to us as individuals, but we can't confuse them because those Old Testament commands for Israel were about a nation carrying out God's justice on other evil nations, or those Psalms were people crying out for God's justice to bring an end to evil against his people. And over in the New Testament, we see some passages that are judicial in nature, and of course some are personal. In Romans 13, Paul writes about how God has established these governing authorities and that people should live in submission to those authorities. And in verse 4 of chapter 13 in Romans, he writes, for he, meaning the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, 
that passage describes the role of government. They have the right to carry out justice. I don't have that right personally to carry out in the way that I might see fit. If you've been paying attention here locally in the news, you know that if you've read the paper, watch local news, there's been a recent trial in which a man was found guilty of a horrific double homicide. And I don't know anyone involved in the case, whether at the the, the arresting officers, the detectives, and, and the prosecution team, or, or the judge, anyone on the jury. I don't know anyone involved in the case, but is it possible for someone to desire justice for the defendant, but at the same time be grieved for that person and still be loving to them? That is possible. Can a member of the jury cast a guilty vote and still be loving? Absolutely. They're functioning in their judicial role. What if someone on the jury said, you know, I just cannot vote for a guilty verdict because the Bible says I should be forgiving and that I should love my enemies. But what about loving the victims and their families? What about loving justice and truth and righteousness? We can do both, and I think we should do both. You see, the problem with Israel's religious leaders was that they they took these judicial passages, they infused them into their hearts, and they made them personal. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. They took this judicial principle and they put it into operation in their ordinary affairs and in their daily lives. They regarded this as a justification for hating their enemies, hating anybody they disliked, or anybody who was offensive to them. Thus, they deliberately destroy the principle of God's law, which is this great principle of love. This was how they concluded that it was okay for them to hate their enemies. So I have a question for me and a question for you. What about us? Who are the people, who are the groups, where in our hearts we have justified our hatred? I know that you probably have people that are immediate to your life, in different circles that you live in, that you think about, and you consider that person or those people an enemy of yours. Or you may even be thinking of people that you don't really know, you just know there's groups out there in the culture that you know of. You hear about them, you hear about them on the news, whatever channel you may watch, and you think to yourself, I don't like those people. I consider those people an enemy of mine. And so we all have people that we can think of as it relates to that. But that doesn't give justification for our hatred, as you'll see here in Matthew 5 as it unfolds. How does Jesus correct this false teaching? Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So these Jewish leaders, they would define neighbor as narrowly as possible, but Jesus here expands it to include one's enemies. Now, sometimes you and I, we will will look at these commands, and they just seem theoretical. We hear, love your enemies, and we think we're just supposed to feel a certain way towards someone. But this is why I think Jesus follows that statement with the phrase, pray for those who persecute you. He gives his disciples 
something to do. You know, sometimes we sit around and we just, we wait for, to, to, to feel love before doing an act of love. C.S. Lewis understood this in his book, Mere Christianity, when he wrote, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. We focus so much on our, on our feelings of love, and we never get around to doing acts of love, like praying for our enemies. And I think there's something in our world today that's keeping us from doing this, and here's what it is. It's authenticity over everything. We see it as the highest good. We pride ourselves on you know, being, being real, being raw, and authentic, you know, this is, this is just who I am, and deal with it. That's how we approach the world sometimes. But doing an act of love for somebody would just seem inauthentic to who we are and what we're about if we don't have feelings of love for that person. But let's be authentic, not as our world defines it, but as our Savior does. And he says that one way to love our enemies is to pray for them. We start right there. Do you know one of the hardest things to do for an enemy, I think, is to pray for them? Even more so than doing a kind act right in front of them, the most difficult thing would be to pray for someone that you consider an enemy. Do you know why? Because you have to go and face God. And you've got you've to turn in prayer and talk to God and pray for someone that you may not respect or may not like. And there's nothing more confrontational than that. There's nothing more humbling than that, than having to go to God and say, God, I'm going to pray to you for my enemies. There is nothing, I think, that, that softens the heart like that, even more so than doing an action for the person. I think praying for one's enemies, there might not, not be anything else quite like that that softens a heart, like praying for one's enemies. I think that's why Jesus says, he connects those phrases together, that you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. So how does God show love to his enemies? Well, he allows everyone to experience this thing called common grace. It's mentioned here in the passage. And common grace is different than saving grace. You and I, we experience saving grace at salvation, but everyone experiences common grace, including the unbeliever. So God, God allows believers and unbelievers to experience his good gifts during their lives. So you see in the passage here, it's mentioned, he says, for he, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So that, that means that when the, when the sun comes out and it shines on those who believe and those who don't, everybody's getting a tan or, or a sunburn, whatever happens to you when you go out in the sun. When, when the rain falls, it, it falls on the just and it falls on the unjust. Can you imagine a world where when the, when the storms 
come through our area if they would snake through and only fall on the believing farmers and then bypass the unbelieving farmers. Can you imagine a world like that? That'd be a crazy, chaotic world, but God gives his good gifts to everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, and we all get to experience that. We all benefit from it. Sam Storms defines it like this. Common grace is every favor falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation, that means the reducing the severity of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. We are really good at focusing on what is wrong with the world. I know that I am. We are really good at, at picking apart things and recognizing the, the wrongness of things, but do we ever stop to ponder what is right and the things that, that seem to work and, and find God's gift of common grace in those things? So there are many good gifts that God makes available to us if we'll just pay attention. You see, just take, for example, like the, the, many of you guys are going to go eat at some point later today. When a believer and an unbeliever go into a barbecue establishment and order a nice, juicy, tender brisket, it tastes the same to both, according, depending, depending on their palate, of course. For the unbeliever, it's not going to taste like cardboard. They both get to enjoy that. It's a gift from God. This would also include things like... Enjoyment of anything like food or sex, prosperity, health, happiness, the list goes on and on. Many people ask, how can a good God allow so much suffering? But no one asks, how can a just God allow so much fun and pleasure? No one's wrestling with that question. I've never heard anyone say that's a reason why they don't believe in God. I just can't make sense of all this fun and pleasure that God allows to happen on this earth. It just doesn't make sense to me. How can God do that? You know, I will admit this is a strange example, but do you know when I am most reminded of God's common grace? Every time I accidentally bite my tongue. When I do that, Listen, I know you've experienced that whenever you're, you're just eating food or you're talking to someone and you, you bite your tongue. And when I do that, it, it's so painful. And I think to myself, I had no idea there was that kind of power behind my, my bite. And, and so whenever I experience that kind of pain, on the one hand, I think to myself, yeah, why did that happen? I get that. But I quickly move to the idea that, you know, it's really strange, though, that that doesn't happen all the time. With as much as I eat, as much as I talk, it happens once every so often, but it's a reminder to me that, you know, things could be worse, right? They really could be worse. And so if you, if you get to the end of a day, you can look back and say, I didn't bite my tongue today. It was a good day. It was a good day. And you see, theologians have identified several areas where we can see God's common grace. There's the restraint of sin. There's the idea that things aren't as bad as they could be. 
Even uh, th- this is why unbelievers will say things like, yeah, they're, they're a pretty good person. Well, yeah, that's God's common grace. We're not as bad as we could be. Restraint of sin, there's delayed judgment, God delaying sometimes many, many, many years, decades, centuries to bring judgment on someone or to stop evil. There are people's gifts and the good they bring about. Whenever I've enjoyed things like going to a sporting event or a, a, you know, a, a music act of some kind or whatever it might be, at times, whether the person's not a believer or not, I, I can walk out and think to myself, that was just a sheer enjoyment of that person's gifts that God gave that person. That's God's common grace at work. And it doesn't stop there. We know that from Scripture, God's common grace is evident even as he blesses the earth. In Psalm 65, it says this, The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. These are, these are inanimate objects being described here. And it's saying that the, the, the earth receives God's common grace and, and shouts to praise him in gratitude. So the earth doesn't hold back. So, so why do we? He doesn't withhold, God doesn't withhold his common grace from the unbeliever, and he doesn't want us to withhold it from our enemies. You see the connection that God gives his good gifts, his common grace, to the unbeliever, people that are his enemies, and he wants us to do the same for our enemies. He wants us treating our enemies how he treats us, by giving them what they don't deserve. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is is really stirring it up now. He is now calling out the scribes and Pharisees by comparing them to people that they most despise. Because they they detested the tax collectors and the Gentiles, and they saw themselves as above everyone especially these people. But Jesus says, no, no, no. He says, no, you're, you're, you're just like them. You live by the same rules. And those, those rules are, you know, you do for me and I'll do for you. You see, our love is, is transactional with people sometimes. That's not real love. Chase talked about retaliation last week. The rules of the world are you injure me and I'll injure you back. You tear me down, and I'll do the same right back to you. But there is a positive kind of retaliation, and that's what Jesus describes here. If you help me, I'll help you. You want to do for me, I will do for you. To quote the Beatles, all you need is love. Yes, but what kind? Human love isn't enough. There's nothing supernatural about it. Nothing divine about it. Nothing stands out and looks any different than what happens out there in the world. That's why we need divine love. Because God operates on a different plane, a different system. Because his love is unconditional. And if we are people who belong to him, then our love should begin to mirror his love. Look at verse 48. 
It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've saved this verse for the end because it looks like we're out of time. I don't have time to explain it. We're going to have to dismiss now. But this is a difficult verse to explain. And I think it's the most difficult one in the whole section. And, and many commentators take this verse not as a conclusion to the passage looked at today, but this entire you have heard it said passage. And listen, I do not believe this is teaching like some will teach that sinless perfection is attainable in this life. That's not what he's teaching here. You cannot view this word perfect as you and I often define it, like a perfect 10 on a scale of one to 10. That's not what he's referring to here. It does not mean moral purity because the Greek word is teleos and it means whole or virtuous. Another way to say it is, is mature or full grown. We've been saying throughout the sermon that God cares about who we are at a heart level, not just external obedience. So to say that a disciple must be teleos as God is teleos means that we must not be one thing on the outside, but another on the inside. Sometimes we hear stories, and we have a certain gut-level response to those stories. Recently, my wife and I were watching this documentary about the Boston Marathon bombers from about 10 years ago. It's a recent documentary, but it happened about 10 years ago. And of course, I knew that happened, but I hadn't really seen the whole story or knew all the details of the story, and I had no idea the full story. And as we're watching this documentary play out and the drama that unfolded after that, that bombing in uh, 2013, uh, you, you, you discover that they, these two bombers, they end up, um, they're on their own, run with the police and they end up killing an MIT police officer. They kidnap a man in his car. He runs into a gas station to escape and they take his car and they're on the run, on the run from the cops. And they had this shootout over in Watertown, severely injuring two officers. One of those officers died later on, about a year later. In the shootout, one of the bombers dies, and the other, of course, is captured and later stands trial, and he's now on death row. You'll see that the bomber who survived showed no remorse, no sorrow for what took place. And by the end of watching something like that, you, you just you feel this, this gut sense of justice, like, yeah, that's right, you, you got what you deserved. The other guy, he got what he deserved. I know whenever we watch movies, it taps into this. And you feel a sense of justice, like, you know, this, I want this person to, to die, this person to win and succeed. And, and you watch certain films, and, and we just see this economy in place. It just is, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And there is an element of justice, of course, that we know we need to support and understand. We understand that. But there's sometimes it, it's just a gut response that we have in those situations and those, hearing those kind of stories. But then we might hear other kinds of stories that might inspire us in a different way. You might know the story of, of Corey Ten Boom. Her family was from Holland, and they were Christ followers. And during World War II, because of their faith, they began hiding Jews in their home from the Nazis. And towards the end of the war, they get found out and they're placed in concentration camps along with the Jewish people. And her father and sister died there, but somehow through a clerical mistake, 
Corey was, was released. And she later heard that all the women in her age group had been sent to the gas chambers shortly thereafter. And just a couple years after the war ended in 1946, she returns back to Germany and she is speaking in a church about forgiveness. And the night after she finishes, this man walks up to her and he was one of the guards in the concentration camp that she had stayed in and she recognized him as he approached her. And all these bitter emotions flooded her when she saw him. And he walked up to her and he looked at her and he said, I need to ask for your forgiveness. You see, since the war, I have become a Christian and I realized the horrible things I did to people and I want to say to you that I am sorry. She was faced with a decision. She had just spoken on forgiveness and now she is face to face with someone who was responsible for her sister's death. She writes these words. And I stood there still with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You, Lord, supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did an, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and it raced down my arm, spraying into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a long time, we, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So how was she able to do that? Because she knew a Savior who did that 2,000 years earlier. Jesus prayed for his tormentors while the iron spikes were being driven, driven through his hands and his feet. He kept praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your saving grace. And how none of us deserve it. None of us deserve salvation. We thank you for saving us. For those that know you, placing your hand on our lives and allowing us to be in a relationship with you. And so we thank you for your saving grace. But God, we also thank you for your common grace and just the kindness that we see from you all around us all the time. 
And God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not yet know you, that they would just take a moment and reflect on the ways in which they see your common grace manifested in their lives. How they have seen it in their lives. Your good gifts given to all. And God, that that kindness would of your common grace would, would lead them to your saving grace. That kindness would lead them to repentance. Kindness would lead them to surrender. God, I pray that they would see your hand in so many ways in which you have provided for them and been good to them. And that would draw them to the greatest act of kindness in history, to the cross and the mercy that's found there that they would cry out to you today for salvation, desiring to be in relationship with you. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in your name. Amen.